Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Last week, I was listening to a Lent sermon by the late Thomas McKenzie. Some of you know the story. Thomas was a fellow Anglican priest, and um, he passed away along with his daughter, tragically, in a car accident last August. And I just love Thomas's preaching. I often check in with him and hear what he has to say. He just preaches without any guile and, and boldly. And I just, uh, so I was preparing for Lent, listening to some Thomas McKenzie sermons. And a sermon he recorded in 2016, he was speaking of his desire to skip Lent. And he didn't want to enter into this 40-day desert journey with Jesus where we focus on our sin and, and on our, our need for repentance and our eventual death. He said, I've seen enough death this year. I don't want Lent. I want cake. And Thomas, his sermon awakened in me this feeling in my own heart. And actually, it's how I felt about Lent last year as well. Maybe we could just skip Lent this time around the sun. Haven't we had enough reminders of sin and, and of death? I mean, in the long wake of COVID and now war in Ukraine, I'm just sick of death. I'm, it's exhausting. On Ash Wednesday, part of me wanted to stay home and eat cookie dough and watch soccer highlights. The dough is better than the cookie. That is precisely why I need Lent so badly. Because my way of coping with death and difficulty is to retreat, go home, seek comfort, eat cookie dough, and distract myself, watch soccer highlights or something else. But speaking for Christ, the church accommodates my frailty and your frailty when it invited us into a holy Lent this past, past Ash Wednesday with these words. I'll repeat them in case you missed it. The church said to us, because of the need... Because of the need that all Christians everywhere continually have to renew our repentance and faith. In other words, because we are imperfect and in process, and the Lord knows that, I invite you to the observance of a holy Lent by self-examination and repentance and fasting and almsgiving and by the reading and meditating on God's holy word. And these words are pregnant with grace. You know, they're not shaming accusation like, you have to do Lent to be more spiritually... No, like... Because we are in need of renewal. And the Lord knows this. The church knows this. Because of our great need, we need Lent. In the economy of Jesus, all we need is need. All healing, all spiritual strengthening begins with that Lenten confession. I am in desperate need of Christ's renewal. And that's why the church gives us Romans 10 also this morning, which Catherine read. Catherine, you should be, and Rachel too, I mean, you guys should be those, in, those voices on our Bible apps, reading to us, the audio Bible. Just beautiful. Um, very kind of anti-Lent text. We heard these words. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And he's like, oh, that's simple. It's all this fasting stuff. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, so simple. So, you know, I want to say with Thomas, aha, there it is. Let's call on the name of the Lord and be done with it. I don't want to go to the desert of self-denial and repentance and, and fasting and death. Bring on the cookie dough. Bring on the cake. Bring on the parties. But, but the mercy of Lent is this. It is only when I, I say no to some of the things that I think will take care of me. Things like food. Things like cookie dough or soccer highlights or comfort or money or whatever it is for you. 
that I realize how empty I actually am, how weak I actually am, how much I depend on almost anything or almost, I mean, everything at times aside from the Lord, how quickly I turn elsewhere. But when I follow Jesus into the desert, and I say no to some of the things that typically I think take, you know, I trust to take care of me, that's when I realize how much need I'm in. And therefore, from that place, I call upon the name of the Lord. So it's actually a deeply Lenten text. The lesson of Lent is not, look at me, I'm so spiritually strong with all this fasting and almsgiving and prayer. I'm going to pray an hour a day, and I'm going to give all my money away, and I'm going to fast for... Okay, but the lesson of Lent is this. I am weak. Therefore, I need to call on the strong name of the Lord. Lent is supposed to lead us to a place where you run out of yourself so that you call on him. And this idea is then reinforced in the, the temptation of Jesus in Luke 4. I, there's, I could preach like a 15-week series on this, this uh, text. I was talking to someone downstairs, and they're like, have you ever thought about it this way? And I'm like, oh, I only have 20 minutes, but yes. Um, but So here's, here's what we're going to talk about today. In verses 1 to 2, if you have a Bible or you follow along on your phone, um, you may want to follow along. But Jesus begins this way, or Luke begins this way, in verse 1 of Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted with the devil. All right, pause. These words immediately link us. They link the temptation of Jesus to two prior events. And the first prior event happens just moments before them. What is it? Baptism. The Holy Spirit has come upon Jesus in his baptism, right? Just moments ago. But they also link us to something that happened thousands of years, over a thousand years ago. The Exodus. The Exodus. Why was Jesus full of the Spirit? Because he had been baptized through the waters. He heard the voice of heaven. You're my beloved son. I'm with you. I'm well pleased. And then the Spirit leads him into the desert for 40 days. Why the desert? Why 40 days? This evokes Israel's ancient desert wanderings for 40 years. You know the story. You know the Exodus. Abraham, his people, his descendants were enslaved in Egypt, but God calls his sons out of Egypt through the waters of the sea and into the wilderness. And then despite the rescue, it's not long at all before God's sons are complaining about the desert's dining options, longing even to return to the captivity and the God's of Egypt, if it means a full belly of steak and cookie dough or whatever. You know, the Lord then provided miraculous bread and miraculous meat from heaven for his people. And the next, the people began fighting and quarreling about water, and they, we read, test God at Massah. And then God provides water through the rock. You know these stories. And then, despite the hiccups, Yahweh goes on to establish his hesed, his chesed, his covenant love for his people through the covenant. And through Moses, he gives his people the law. And the first thing the law says is what? You shall have no other gods before me. And the first thing the people do is make another god, the golden calf. So you add up this story, and what do you find? The origin story of God's people, the sons of God. Here's what you have. The sons of God have been called out of Egypt. They've been baptized through the water. They've been sent into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, they failed three tests, very specific things. They grumbled about food. They tested God. And they worshiped idols. Now you see where this is going. When Matthew notes that Jesus flees to Egypt to escape Herod, when the family of Jesus flees, 
He writes these words, That was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Like Israel, Jesus was called out of Egypt. Like Israel, Jesus was baptized through the waters. And like Israel, Jesus was sent immediately into the desert. What was he doing but retracing the footsteps of Israel? That's exactly what he was doing. But why? Because he was going to be faithful where Israel was unfaithful. He was going to be strong where they were weak. He was going to be, in a word, their substitute. And here we must pause to ask, where are you and I in this story? I think it's very easy to read the temptation narratives and just think like, oh, Jesus is doing it. I follow Jesus, so I do that. Like, I'm Jesus in this story, resisting temptation. Well, yeah, kind of. Are we Jesus overcoming every temptation? Or are we Israel, grumbling over bread, testing God, worshiping idols? Lent forces me to recognize the reality that I am Israel. I am not Israel's Messiah. I want to retreat to my home more than retreat to the Lord. I want to eat cookie dough more than I want the bread of heaven. I want entertainment more than I want eternal life. I am simply not spiritually strong enough. I need a substitute. Look now at the temptations. Each temptation kind of increases in literal and in spiritual altitude as they progress. And the first comes right there on the desert floor. The devil begins, if you are the son of God. Why does he begin this way? Well, what did I just show? In walking the very footsteps of Israel, the so-called sons of God, well, the sons of God who failed, Jesus is claiming to be the true son of God. What is more, the voice from heaven just, you know, resolutely clarifies this. You are my beloved son. At its core, then, what I want to say is that these temptations that are going to follow are ultimately about identity. On the surface, they're about food and power and glory, as we'll see. But below the surface, they are about identity. This is true also of us as we face temptation. In our Sexuality 101 and Sexual Integrity 101 class on Monday nights, there's a group of I don't know, 20, 25 of us meeting on Zoom. We've been learning about um, sexual addiction and really all forms of brokenness grow in the unhealthy soil of toxic core beliefs about ourselves. For example, a toxic core belief like, I am unlovable. If you get down to the bottom of it, in your heart you have this belief, I am unlovable, what does that give rise to? But desperately unhealthy grasps after love in unhealthy ways. Or if you, if you harbor a toxic core belief, a false core belief about yourself, deep within that says, I am I'm ugly. Doesn't that grow into unhealthy attempts to feel desired and to obsess over appearances? I believe this is precisely why the devil's temptations don't hook Jesus, because he had a core belief about himself settled. Jesus endured these temptations, remember, as a man. It's easy to think, well, he's God, so like, it was easy for him. No, 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 no. That's, that's actually heretical. Jesus endured these temptations fully man. Fully God, yes, but he is laying aside his divinity and he is walking through these things with the power of the Spirit, just like you and I. Now, how did he do it? The Lord sent him into the wilderness to face these temptations with the holy power of a secure core belief about his identity. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And after that's secured, 
And to the extent that's secured, we face temptations with strength like Jesus does. Now, I believe, you know, that... um, I'll get there in a minute. The secure core identity of Jesus as the beloved son meant that when the devil tempts him with power and with food and with glory, the Lord is able to say, you know what? Any food, any power, any glory that is not given and blessed by my father is not mine. Because he will always take care of me. He will always give me what, what, what I need. So the first temptation, let's look at this. The first temptation comes after Jesus' belly. Just as Israel's aching belly led them to, you know, complain and grumble in the wilderness. And the devil says, if you're of the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And I'm told, I, how many of you have been to Israel? Anyone been to Israel in the desert? I haven't. It's on my bucket list, definitely. But I'm told that the little stones dotting the desert floor there in the wilderness, from a distance, especially if you're hungry and you've been fasting for 40 days. I mean, you all know this if you tried to fast this past Ash Wednesday or Friday. Just like skip one meal and your whole world falls apart. But imagine him seeing these stones. They look a little bit like bread. And the devil knows you've got the power just to... But Why? I mean, why was he able to resist? One does not live on bread alone, he says. Was it because his pastor asked him to fast some during Lent, and so now he had to prove his religious merits? Fasting is not a religious formality. Um, (laughs) I can't help myself on this one. I don't know that I've ever told an official joke in church. I promise not to make a habit of it. It's very annoying when it's every week. But I couldn't help myself on this one. Um, Candice and I are in a spiritual direction cohort, and this past Tuesday I heard this excellent Lent joke. It captures how some of us think about fasting. The Irishman, three, this Irishman walks into a bar at night, and he orders three drinks, three beers, drinks three beers. And the next night, he does it again. He orders three beers, and he drinks three beers. And the next night, he does it again. And finally, the bartender asks him, why are you always coming to the bar and ordering exactly three drinks and drinking exactly, all, why not more, why not less? And the Irishman tells him, well, I have two brothers, and they live on the other side of the world, Whenever any of us go into a bar and get a beer, we've decided we're going to order one for each of us. So it's kind of our way of spending time together, even though we're apart. Well, the next day, the Irishman comes in and he orders two beers. And he drinks two beers. And the bartender is quite concerned, and he asks him, like, something happened to one of your brothers? Are are they okay? And the Irishman's like, yeah, they're great. They're fine. The bartender asks, well, okay, why are you drinking two beers instead of three? And the Irishman responds, because I gave up drinking for Lent. Thank you, Howard Baker, for that one. Jesus is not inviting, he is not fasting, and he's not inviting us to fast as a religious hurdle or a religious formality to merit God's love. He fasted because he already had God's love. He had a core belief about his identity. I am the beloved son. The food my father gives me is all I need. I need his love and his words more than bread. And for 40 days, he prayed that with his life, with his body. Next, the devil elevates the temptation a little bit. He takes Jesus to show him the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you'll worship me, like Israel did the golden calf, I will give you all their power. And then I ask the question, is, is that the devil's even to give? Can the devil offer that? And I think that we can make sense of this by seeing that when kings or kingdoms give themselves over to the seductive power of power, they put themselves, ironically, under the power of the devil and of evil. 
I mean, consider Russia and Vladimir Putin. I mean, is it not haunting how widespread and devastating the effect of one man's darkened soul can be? One man's insatiable lust for power can break the world. Now, why did the hook of power not sink into Christ? Because in his heart, he had a core belief about his identity, and it was settled. I am the beloved son. Therefore, I will only take the power that my father blesses and that my father gives. When you know that you are the beloved daughter, or the beloved son, the beloved child of Christ, you, you don't need to say, I, you don't need to coerce. You know, you don't need to force. You don't need to take. You don't need to manipulate or deceive or to try to look better than you are to get more influence. The precise amount and kind of power that God has given you is exactly what you need. No more, no less. Finally, the devil offers Jesus the pinnacle of his temptations, glory. He takes him above the, the glorious heights of the most glorious building in Jerusalem, symbolically elevating him over the presence of God. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down and he'll catch you. I think the temptation here was asking Jesus to determine when and how God would act. I mean, imagine the glory of this claim to fame. God does my bidding. I can force his hand. I can manipulate God. And the devil then twists Scripture, and he empowers his thrust with this twisting of Scripture, and Jesus again diverts this poisonous barb. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, kind of reversing what Israel did at Massah. Why did the hook of glory not sink into Christ? How was Christ able to refuse this path to glory? Because in his heart, he had a core belief about his identity. I am the beloved son. God has told me he loves me, and I trust him. The end. It's up to him to act when and how he will. And I do not need to manipulate him into helping me because I do not doubt he knows exactly when and how and where to help me for my good. And at this, the devil departs. And so I've made the case this morning that the essence of each of these temptations is to get Jesus to doubt the core belief about his identity as the beloved son. And I'd like to simply say to you and me that the devil is very smart, but he is not novel. The devil is smart, but he is not novel. He is setting the same hooks for us. The same bait. Food, pleasure, power, status, honor, glory, and the key to not biting isn't, oh, I'm going to give up Facebook and chocolate and beer for Lent. <laughs> you know? The key to not biting is to have a settled core belief about who you are. In and through Christ, you are a beloved son, you're a beloved daughter, you're a beloved child, and with you he is well pleased. And so as hungry as you may be, there is no food your father is withholding that you need more than his word. And as powerless as you may be or feel, there is no power that your father is withholding that would be for your good. And as much as you might desire honor or glory, there is nothing you need to manipulate God into doing that he hasn't already done for you. There is no glory greater than trusting that you are his child, that he is your father, and that he will glorify you in his time in his timing. In the coming weeks then, do not think that the application of the temptations of Jesus is to try harder. I mean, our bishop often says it, try harder is not good news. Instead, in the coming weeks, know that you are Israel. You are not Israel's Messiah. You are weak in need of renewal. The Lord knows this. 
The path to renewal does indeed go through the desert, but you do not go into this Lenten desert as the Savior. You go as the sinner in need of the Savior. And so the lesson of Lent is this. You are weak, but you can call on the Lord who is strong. So don't focus on conquering sin or sin management. You focus on companioning the one who has conquered sin. Again, I learned this week at, at Praxis from Howard Baker that the word companion, I was surprised I didn't know this, that the word companion combines two words, calm, which means with, and pan, which means bread. To companion someone then is to break bread with them. So as you go into the desert this Lent, go as Christ's companion. We're going to do that in a moment. But before you step foot in the desert, you must allow the voice of heaven to speak this core belief into your heart. Over and over and over again, it takes time to believe, right? To to uproot those toxic core beliefs we have and to actually apprehend and experience and feel and know you are beloved child of God. In your baptism, through the waters, whether you are two months old or 20 years old, because it's about what the Lord was doing and his strength, not yours. In your baptism, God made you his own child. And he gave you his spirit. And yes, you are now out in the wilderness. But you are companioning Jesus. Galatians 4, 6 through 7. God has spent the spirit of the spirit of his son into your hearts, by which we cry, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. So friends, call upon the name of the Lord, your Abba, Father. And as you do, you will find that you have a companion who is actually giving his own body. He's companioning you, giving you his own body as bread. All you need this Lent is need. Let him be your food. Let him be your power. Let him be your glory, for he is enough. He is enough. Father, we pray that you would help the truth of your word to sink into our minds and hearts. It's easy, especially for those of us who have grown up hearing your word so much, to hear them sort of as religious encouragements. But I pray that by your Spirit, you would cause them to sink deeply, that you would eradicate false core beliefs about ourselves. That as we follow you into the desert and we feed on you and your word, you would remind us that, yes, we are weak, but you are strong. And in your strength and because of your strength, you've given us yourself and we are beloved in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.